0: listening to March Mad Men the podcast haunted by the question can we determine what is the greatest haunted house film ever made and will anyone listen if we do I'm John Evans and as always I am joined by produced screenwriter Vikram Wheat and Emmy-nominated producer Rich Eckersley Rich if you win the Emmy I'm gonna have to go back and re-edit all of these podcasts (laughs) tonight we're gonna go ahead
1: I expect you to, John.
0: <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I will demand it, John. <laughs> Tonight, we're going to begin our tournament's third round, The Evil Eight, as a sinister Colorado hotel squares off with a doomed orphanage in Spain. We've got bare suited fellatio givers going up against impotent professors and big wheels battling bombs the size of a Chrysler. It's The Shining versus the devil's backbone hey i am ready i can i think uh, it's pretty obvious let's go around the horn with some greetings gentlemen uh vic let's start with you buddy how the hell are you this evening
2: you know i'm i'm actually in in a fair bit of pain john i uh i, I cracked a rib i'm pretty sure uh, uh, a couple of days ago and uh, it's making me feel my age uh, just a a stupid accident. I stumbled over a kid's toy, reached to catch myself on a folding chair, missed, and just just landed with my ribs square on that. And uh, boy, it's 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 just astonishing how much it's made me feel old. So I'm looking forward to this as as digging back into my youthful fascination with horror films and i'm especially excited to do these two films i think it's there's something actually fortuitous about these two movies winding up in this round i found a lot of of synchronicities when i was doing my research with this i'm really excited to get into it
1: you're a lauded writer can't you come up with a better story than you tripped on a on a kid's toy
2: (laughs) i could actually that's what i what i should tell you so we went to a cabin in big bear for the weekend, and I managed to late at night really scare the shit out of myself, thinking that the the cabin was was somehow weirdly haunted. Uh, it was mostly prompted by the fact that when you get like an Airbnb like this, they always have the the owner 's closet that 's locked, and so we had to explain to my youngest son, Roland. Uh, what that was and why it was locked and why it couldn't go in there. And he became convinced that the owners were actually in the closet. And then there were just a couple of strange things. Things were unplugged that shouldn't have been unplugged in like our bedroom. And then in the middle of the night, Roland fell out of the top bunk at 2.30 in the morning. And I—I I, he was hysterical. and We finally got him calmed down. I went to go back to bed in the, the master bedroom, and our fan was unplugged, and then I started to think about Roland talking about the owners being in the closet, and I just think that the proliferation of haunted house films in my head started to take over, and I started to think, what if Roland didn't roll out of the bed? What if something pushed him? What if something pulled him out of the bed? Uh, And and then I I really did freak out for uh, a solid 15, 20 minutes before I fell asleep.
0: See, I have two things to say here. One is Vic is now a consummate podcasting professional because we shot the shit for a good 10 minutes before this. Did he blow that story while we were just chatting? Hell no. He saved it for the pod. So props out, Vic. And second, Vic um, was recently invited to pitch for the Pact 3, and he had no idea what his take was. Now he does. <laughs> it's
2: my it's my new spec. It's called uh. It's either called Airbnb or the owners.
0: <laughs> it's funny. That's definitely in the zeitgeist. Like there are a lot of movies along those lines getting made right now. So, Rich, how are you doing today? Uh, do you can you top that? For instance,
1: I cannot top that. I don't have any. Uh, I don't really have any any foreign brushes with, with horror in my own life. I guess that's something that I could be grateful for. I'm definitely looking forward to this discussion. I think it's going to be an interesting one. I've been mulling over how it's going to go. I'm expecting something a little more loose than what we're normally talking about when we're unconfined by the, the strictures of, of plot. Um, you know, and so I'm hoping that those uh two five milligram uh, gummies that I took before the pod are gonna are gonna kick in and things are gonna get you know, pretty pretty colorful and interesting and unfold in all sorts of unnatural ways over the course of this conversation.
0: We're gonna hear your theory on the Kennedy assassination at some point. Probably wouldn't be a bad tie into a discussion of the shining. So yeah. I'm sure Kubrick has something to do with it. <laughs> Well, I have a little taste of horror to share myself. Pet owners, what if all of a sudden multiple pets in your home suddenly stopped pooping? (laughs) Ba-ba-bum! Now, that would be a nightmare because I think it's a life function that might be essential. So were your animals to suddenly, like, okay, let's take cats, which I have two of. What if you went on vacation over the weekend for three days and you came back and the litter box was empty? That might worry you. That might worry you. Well, it worried me. So I took one to the vet today, the the older one that I could, I'm 100% sure he's been having problems. And uh, he got an enema, folks. So how's that for a little real-life horror?
1: And that was your pitch for the Pact (laughs) 3.
0: Nick got the job. Yeah, funny how that works. <laughs> well,
1: uh,
2: unfortunately, John did uh, share that story with us before the pod, and now Rich and I had to take a drink because we weren't sure that John could work in a cat anime into the pod. But well done, buddy.
1: Yeah, deal's a deal.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I miss Hollow Weekend too. So drink up. <laughs> <laughs> Longtime listeners will know that's another one of our. Uh, drinking games. So uh, without further ado, I guess we should talk about actual horror movies instead of the actual horror in our lives. What do you think? If we have to. All right. Well, I want to point out that uh, we're now sort of a – we're not publishing, but we have a video component, and I get to do this with Jack Torrance's frozen corpse peering over Vic's shoulder. So I absolutely love it. It's actually a meme that he did for our show. I don't know if it ever saw the light of, light of day, but um, I appreciate it. All right. So, folks, let's start with the Devil's Backbone, if that's cool. Are you guys good with that?
1: I was really, I was really ready to dive into The Shining, but uh, but let's do it.
0: <laughs> I have, like, the, the weird thought that, like, I want to be fresh for the Devil's Backbone. I can coast drunk off my ass for The Shining. <laughs>
2: That's actually, that's a, that's a good point, John. That's, that's,
0: that's, a good, that's a good way of looking at it. I agree. So um, I want to pull out a quote that I found, um, which is just sort of a nice table setter for this evening's show. Here's the quote. Del Toro's lush emotional romanticism is a far cry from Stanley Kubrick's cool detachment in his big haunted house movie, The Shining. And, uh, this is a blog I just stumbled upon, a guy named Kenneth George Godwin. I guess he's a a film editor. He's got a good blog. It's, uh, kgfilms.com. But, um, that, uh, that was the only sort of tie-in or actual thought that combined these two films that I was able to find. Maybe you guys did, but, uh... Without further ado, let's actually get granular with Devil's Backbone. And tonight, everyone, this show is going to be different. We have three categories that we're going to be delving into. And the first is historical significance. And basically what this means is, yeah, we can look at critics. We can look at influence on other films. This is where we can sort of... Even though I like to keep this personal, this is about three horror fans, lifelong horror fans, and their opinions and views. You can tie in the film's place in the pantheon, but hopefully uh, it's not just about the esteem of others. It's really your opinion of the film's place in history. That's kind of the criteria for this category. All right, so with that said, let me throw out a couple of tidbits here, and then I will kick it over to Vic for his thoughts on historical significance. Let me just kind of frame the conversation as I often do with a Roger Ebert quote, because I love Roger fucking Ebert. Del Toro is attracted by the horror genre, but not enthralled to it. He uses the golden beetle, the mimic insects, the school ghosts, not as his subjects, but as the devices that test the souls of his characters. I like that. So Vic, take it away.
2: So I definitely concur with that. One of the things that I noted uh, in in poking around about some of the the theories and and, and reactions to this, I came across uh, Guillermo del Toro wrote a foreword to uh, a book that there's actually a whole book about the Devil's Backbone. I did not read the whole book, but I did read Guillermo del Toro's foreword, and one of the things that he said in that is that the For him, the idea was that the human cruelty was more frightening than the ghost. And so there's a a sense in which that undermines its effectiveness as a horror film, which is something that I think we really touched on when we we dove into this movie, that there's a lot of creepy effects and the ghost is very creepy, but it's not a a terrifying film in the way that, say, The Shining is. And what I find that's interesting about that is that So that undermines it as a horror film, but it really raises the question, did Guillermo del Toro set out to make a horror film? Does this film not succeed as a horror film? Is that a a failing on the film's part, or is it just the rules of the contest that we've entered it into that just aren't designed to advance a movie like this? Because I do think that that's once he once he articulated it in that sort of simple concise way that the human cruelty is meant to be more frightening than the ghost, then it, it, it sort of explains some of my issues with the film as regards this contest but also makes it go, well geez, if, if we were looking at this in a in a contest with a, a different goal in mind, maybe it would it would fare a little better I don't know what, what are your guys thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think you're right that we're – that is trying to hobble this film by the design of our competition and not necessarily by the design of the film. I mean, Del Toro has – I mean, if you just look at the guy's career, you know just from watching that he is a bit of a genre masher. And when you hear him talk, he really takes pride in that, and I think he probably goes out of his way. Often to to sort of, like, work outside the confines of any specific genre. I read some quote from him that I'm going to paraphrase because I didn't didn't copy it down here, but he said something to the effect of, like, he realized shortly after finishing Mimic, which was the film he did prior to this, that he wasn't really sure where he belonged because he understood that he loved pop culture too much to be a tried-and-true genre director, but he also liked oddities too much to actually be a true mainstream director and he's really made a career out of riding that line and occasionally getting hits where he managed to to find the right balance I mean maybe there's a bigger question here as to like did he actually find the right balance for this film I'd argue that he probably did but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to fit firmly in the camp of of horror I, I think your point's well taken I think it's just like it's The film was achieving what it set out to do in the first place. So it's hard to hold that against it.
0: I think it's really interesting that you guys both hit on that because one of my thoughts was even more specific, but in in the same arena, which is I was considering this as a haunted house movie. Not not even is it a horror movie, but I was thinking – is this a quintessential haunted house movie, which by the narrow mandate of this season of our show, that's supposedly what we're interested in or most interested in. And I would say that it is definitely not a quintessential haunted house movie because, you know, it doesn't contribute to the, the grammar or the tropes or the lore, nor is it a movie that sets out to meaningfully deconstruct those things. It's both unconcerned with the traditional elements of the subgenre, and it's not an entry that is widely copied by others within the subgenre. So while I don't think we would be quibbling or arguing too much like, well, is it a haunted house movie? Should it even be in this season? I think we you know, crossed that bridge a long time ago. But I would say, and I don't think you guys would really disagree with this no matter what your feelings are about the movie, it's more of a Del Toro movie than a Haunted House movie. But I would argue that every Del Toro movie is more a Del Toro movie than whatever other genre or subgenre you would call it. So
2: what you're saying is because it doesn't have a seance or a wardrobe, it's not really a Haunted House movie.
0: Oh, I mean, look, dude, it it just doesn't, like, have any of those archetypes, you know? Like, it, it, it just – it's doing something so different. The only thing is that it's a structure and there's a ghost. Those are the only sort of criteria that you would apply. Like, the, yeah, you and you can kind of hear – the ghost like sighing and whatnot. And there's that scene where the ghost like uh, traps the kid in the cover or whatever. Like there's a couple sequences that are quasi traditional. I just don't immediately think of this movie as. If the word traditional just does not come to mind.
2: This is a movie that's set in a haunted house, but is not really about a haunted house. I think.
1: I mean, it's definitely about, I mean, the thing about this movie that, that, makes it interesting and, and sort of the, the rabbit hole that I end up climbing down as I was doing my research into like the, the broader like public opinion of it and analysis is that it's about so much more than, than just the house. And I'd say that on one hand, you know, you can, you can follow that train of thought and you can say, well, this is about this is a movie about about war and, and politics and, and emotions and, and trauma and it's interested in exploring all these big and broad ideas and I agree that it doesn't give into tropes that much but at the same time yeah there is a there, there's definitely a ghost who's wandering around the confines of the house the fact that the ghost like ultimately leads you down to a basement where you are taken back time and time again to the to the scene of its death uh, right down to the very you know climax of the of the film which which ends with someone you know meeting their meeting their their maker so to speak at the same place where they where they committed a crime i mean these are classic certainly ghost movie tropes and the fact that it's so closely tied to the actual structure of the house in this case being like the well at the bottom you don't get much more haunted house than than that I don't, I don't think, I, I think there's also something to be said for like the, when you were saying that, that initially, John, that it, it defies some of the classic tropes is the the bomb in the middle of it is the thing that almost evokes the idea of a haunted house more than anything else as non-traditional as that idea is that it's about the fear of this thing that you don't completely understand and that has a potential that that terrifies you. And it's both invisible and and in plain sight at the same time.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, the bomb is a great symbol and the movie is loaded with powerful symbolism. And I do want to say to play devil's advocate for myself, I agree with you that this is an exemplar of the subgenre's approach to ghosts. Like, This I have said before, but I think it bears repeating, that there is a type of ghost movie that is about people who died with some crucial thing left undone. They have unfinished business, that it's terribly cruel to die without completing. And this is also a a standard bearer for the idea that ghosts can be scary without actually meaning harm to the innocent, and I think that those are things that other ghost movies now and then, especially the ones that don't involve quote unquote demons, do explore. And I think this is probably the best one of those compared to, like, the others, for example, which this movie is often compared to. And it's an idea the idea of potentially befriending ghosts. I know that it's something that Del Toro has talked about from his own childhood it was important to him that he was afraid of the the boogeyman under his bed or in the closet or whatever the you know the forces around him that 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 were strange and potentially menacing that he could make friends with them and that is something that i 100% experienced in my own childhood like i actually that was part of my coping mechanism with my own fears about the scary things that that might be out there that I could possibly make friends with them. So I really relate to that aspect of his own uh, story. And I think that's a big part of this movie.
2: Well, I think uh, when it comes to the actual historical significance of this, where I think this probably lands ultimately is as just a very important stepping stone in the career of Guillermo del Toro. Uh, I think he's going to be making really interesting, uh, strange genre mashup films for a long time. And my guess is by the time we get to some of those genres, he's going to have more movies in there that we're going to have to talk about. Uh, I think Crimson Peak was one of the ones that, that we really debated whether or not would make it into this list. I think there's going to be more of those. And when we look back on that, I mean, we are talking to a guy who – you know, Pan's Labyrinth, The Shape of Water. I mean, this is a an Oscar-winning filmmaker who is really a, a you know a creative force in the industry right now. And when you look back on his career, when we're giving him the kind of retrospectives that people are giving to Stanley Kubrick, people are going to look at the jump between Mimic and The Devil's Backbone. And interestingly, I don't know if you guys, I'm sure you guys probably encountered this, but the role that Pedro Almodovar, Almodovar, excuse me, uh, played in that. In that process, where after getting browbeaten by Bob Weinstein on Mimic uh, and, and then really not being able to get anything made and, and sort of being afraid that maybe he just wasn't going to be a filmmaker, uh, rang up Pedro, who had told him at the Com Film Festival after Kronos, and said, Hey, let's make a movie together sometime. And so they hashed this out. The movie had the the script had originally been set in in during the the Mexican Revolution. Rewrote it for the Spanish Revolution. Shot it in Spain. But he talked about in that introduction that I mentioned that Pedro he he'd said to to Pedro uh, Almodovar, "Hey, I, you know, I need to have final cut on this." And Pedro said, "What's final cut? This means I just have to have the final say on the the editing, the post production of the film." And Pedro said, "Of course you have that. You're the director." And I just think that that was that really was a transformative moment for him in terms of his filmmaking and really being able to indulge those impulses towards mashing up genres and not being confined to the tropes and things uh, that that are important. And so I think that's what this film's really going to be remembered
0: for. To put that into context, his experience with Weinstein was so bad that he literally said that the experience of Bob Weinstein producing Mimic inflicted more damage than the two months that del Toro's father was kidnapped in Mexico. Jesus. (laughs) Like, chew on that. And yeah, the idea of Final Cut was, you know, not even a question. Like, it was Bob Weinstein was in complete control of the film, and that's why del Toro was so traumatized.
1: Yeah, I think I read the same interview and like his his explanation of that of that statement was that he's like at least like kidnapping has rules and like structure and makes sense. Seriously. So Bob Weinstein does not. I mean, it's I think Vic, Vic you're kind of touching on something interesting like in terms of like historical significance for this because I think that this movie does have a tendency to stand in the shadow of its of its literal uh sister film. Um, Pan's Labyrinth which is a movie that I would go further in arguing is just like straight up not a horror movie but a fantasy movie with some horrific elements to it And, and a great movie in its own right but it got a lot more widespread critical acclaim it had a higher budget it just in general was seen by more people and I think that you couldn't have got to Pan's Labyrinth without this film so I, it it is definitely a pivotal film in terms of the development of, like you were saying, Vic, someone who is in our present day a, a major you know creative and, and cultural voice for not just this genre but many other genres. But also the, the comparisons that you guys were talking about to The Others is that this is a film that came out in uh, – what were we at? It's about a,
0: a, a year before The Others, I would say. 2001 is when this came out.
1: 2001. So this is this is like turn of the century. I mean, I was definitely aware of this film. I saw it in the in the theater when it came out. And my impression, looking back at it, was that this was for the era that it came out a really strong entry to people who were paying attention. That you could have a horror film that was also an art film. I mean, the the late 90s, early 2000s were a big time for art films. I mean, this was really the I guess sort of the, the the dying years of the of the big indie boom that, that Tarantino really ushered into the mainstream, and you didn't see a lot of really intelligent horror coming out of it. I mean, horror is, is just—I mean, anyone who's a fan of this podcast knows—is always sort of relegated to being thought of as kind of a dumb genre. And here was something smart and emotional and lyrical and thoughtful that seemed to have a lot more going on for it than just spooks and specters and and scares and monsters. And um, so to me, I think for, you know, it's certainly that has been done before this movie was made, but I think that for a particular generation, this movie was an important entry in terms of that line of thinking.
0: Well, yeah, Rich, but I mean, like, I have a hard time putting my finger on, like, this movie as being really kicking off, like, a trend or something. I mean, I think as you correctly pointed out, it's not the first classy, artful, elegiac horror movie loaded with symbolism that's ever, ever been made. Like, I I don't know that I can point to movies that came after it and say, oh, that's so Devil's Backbone. At least nothing that...
1: Other than maybe Pan's Labyrinth.
0: Yeah, but it's the same guy. Wait, <laughs> I mean, he influenced himself. <laughs> I mean, I don't give you points to, for influencing yourself.
1: <laughs> I mean, I'd say, I'd say the orphanage, like, also, like... like he
0: produced that.
1: that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, I, I'm not going to say that people don't find El Toro influential. I think he's certainly an influential stylist, and everyone can recognize... Del Toroisms in movies both his own usually but I think you know if you saw something that was like it you would we would immediately say that reminds me uh, of Del Toro and I think that's a valid inspiration to take but I just don't see a lot of movies like let's just compare it this is crass but by this standard of being influential like paranormal activity might be king because it kicked off the entire found footage genre. Yes, we could argue that it should have been Blair Witch Project that did that, but no, it was Paranormal Activity that you know spawned a, a million other movies. So that's kind of what I'm looking for in a, in a way here. And I just I can't. I, I think this is a pretty unique movie, and for better or for worse, it, it's it's not like it was imitated. I guess is what I'm saying. The
1: fact that Pan's Labyrinth is the movie that. I think most people, at least in terms of horror and especially that sort of arty, like foreign language horror, like if people had to pick a Del Toro film out of a, out of a, out of a hat, they would end up picking probably Pan's Labyrinth, maybe the shape of water. And, you know, you you get some people like picking like Hellboy. You know, well, like these, these are signature films. I think, I think a lot of people who are even casual fans of him would, would take a while before they even got to devil's backbone if they're even familiar with it, honestly, like even finding it for this podcast, it was one of the more difficult movies to even locate as a, as a rental.
0: It was. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's I would say it's fair to say it's a relatively obscure movie. All right. Well, lots to think about there. And I think that's a natural segue to the next category. And this is going to be something that we apply to every movie in this round. And the category is called Food for Thought and this is pretty much what it sounds like, but is it a movie that makes you think long after the final credits? Are you still pondering riddles that the film has laid out for you long after you saw the movie? Do you enjoy musing about the world before, beneath, and after the story that we watched? That's basically this this section, and I think it is a pretty important category for a a great movie in any genre. So let's get into food for thought on the devil's backbone. How, how did it make you think and what lingers with you about the film? Uh, Rich, why don't you start us on, on this one?
1: There's a lot about watching this movie when I revisited it for the sake of this podcast. And it had been some time before I'd seen it last. Definitely that there is a lot of, there's a lot of cryptic discussions and very poetic conversations. Like I'm I'm brought back to the the conversation that Cesares has with with the boy about the about the the fetuses in the in the jars and also all of the material that seems to surround the the politics and the historical storyline that's that's surrounding all of this. And that's something that I was not very familiar with, and I'd say watching it, you know, I don't really have a great understanding of the of the Spanish Civil War. And, you know, as I kind of tried to scratch the surface of what there was to think about, I found that, you know, the other people that had reviewed this film in the past were, were intrigued and, and sort of felt like there are gaps in their knowledge as well only to learn that like apparently not many people are familiar with the Spanish Civil War altogether because it happened right before World War II and and so it just kind of got swept under the rug in terms of historical storytelling. So, you know, I I don't I'm not going to go too deep into it, but I think that there are definitely mysteries in watching it that are to be revealed in terms of you know that there is a lot of symbolism happening in the movie because there's a lot that you recognize from a purely human and emotional level and then it's clear that there's a lot of symbolism that is happening uh, culturally as well that you may or may not be able to latch onto and for me like I, that is something that I enjoyed delving in on my own and was really driven to try to learn more about to understand where the where the film was coming from so I think in that sense I did find it very thought provoking.
0: You know, I'm I'm going to be just 100% nakedly honest, is that I'm taking this from a personal perspective. And I have a hard time getting that passionate about the Spanish Civil War, just because that's, you know, my life experience and everything. So like, as much as I try to like, God, if I really think about this, is that going to be something that's like, deeply fascinating to me. And for me, it's it's not quite happening. You know, maybe it's just because I'm too caught up in my own shit and where we are right now in 2020 in America. Um, but, you know, even I will say this, though, I will say this, the idea of fascism being something we should be concerned with is 100% something that feels relevant. Um, and I, I, I do think that, Some of the the nightmare of this movie or what it presents sticks with me because now more than ever, I'm worried about kind of a post-apocalyptic scenario that you see with how alone this orphanage is, how without recourse the characters are, and might makes right in this film's world. And that's always a hard thing to reconcile ourselves with as viewers And it's something that I worry about societies, countries all over the world heading in this direction for various reasons. So that resonates with me, but I want to be clear that it's more like the universal and or potentially relevant now thing. It's not that I suddenly became fascinated with. I mean, not to, you know, no disrespect to what it was like to be in Spain in 1939, but like that we're talking personally and passionately here is, is my perspective. So. That's where I'm coming
1: from. Even from a broader point of view, like one of the things that, that I, that Del Toro had said about this was that part of the motivator here is that war is the greatest ghost engine of all. And I feel like that is a, that is boiling down what I'm trying to say in a, in a very broad way that I think connects with what you're trying to say. I mean, that's a pretty compelling argument for a horror film. And yeah i i I hear what you're saying but uh I was immediately sort of drawn in by the idea that at least in terms of how he was trying to build an allegory of this film that you know in a in a nutshell like the the children and the orphans in the sense are sort of meant to to represent this you know proletariat like grassroots revolution of people who essentially couldn't protect themselves because they were under the thumb of a fascist dictator, and so that's where you literally get like Lord of the flies-esque children having to defeat the monster with sticks and having to, you know, to learn. So I don't, I don't know. I felt like that to me, like are layers that added to the, the meaning of the film. But that said, I'll also say that like after I finished watching this movie last time, I wasn't like sitting around in my room, just pondering that. It was something that became more interesting as I read about it.
2: Rich, it's, uh, it's, it's, Interesting you said that. One of the the quotes that I sort of copied down from this was from Andrew Saris's review of the film, and he said, as the film progresses, all the characters take on an allegorical signification corresponding to the tragic history of their time. Carmen, the, witty, the widow of the leftist poet, hates herself for succumbing to the sexual prowess of the crypto-fascist Jacinto, but she's tired of impotent idealist poets like her dead husband and Cesarus who love her but cannot satisfy her sexual hunger. The impotence of Savaris is, is analogous to the impotence of France and England in dealing with Franco's fascist incursion into Europe, already trembling with fear over Hitler's menacing gestures. In the end, it is the boys and the boys alone who must save themselves from Jacinto's Franco-like and Hitler-like aggressions. And that that's one of those things where I read that and I was like, like, that's an interesting take. I don't know how much – Cesarus is, uh, you know, consciously or unconsciously likened to uh, France and England in in this scenario. There's there's very little discussion of any other countries, and uh, in, in in the film, but it is a film that begs some of those kind of allegorical questions. And what is the what what is the symbolism of these characters? I mean, to say that Jacinto represents. The sort of right-wing fascism and greed is, I think, sort of a no-brainer. And it does give this film another level.
0: I have a quote for you that I think is relevant to what we're talking about right now. Del Toro told Time Magazine in 2011, Much like fairy tales, there are two facets of horror. One is pro-institution. The other is completely anarchic and anti-establishment. What do you, which do you think this movie is
2: i mean i would say that this is pro uh, uh, establishment i think this is a film that that operates on a, a set of moral principles that it is seeking to reinforce in a way that the texas chainsaw massacre is not
0: that's a that's a very fair in- interpretation i will say i don't have a great answer my first thought was that the institution here is the the, the fascist government, and the kids sort of represent an anti establishment force but but yeah, I mean, I can't argue with your read either Rich. What are your thoughts on it
1: I was, my my immediate reaction to it was was actually that it was the anarchic, but it was more that this film was. Not directly, but like bucking against like the Weinstein institution, like that this was the feeling of a of a filmmaker who I mean, this thing plays like a passion project in that way that only like indie films can. And there are elements of it that I'm not can't quite put my finger on right now, but do feel like a filmmaker who is trying to stretch their legs a little bit after being held within the confines of like a, of a, of a studio system. Like you can just feel someone who like wants to explore, you know, like poetic ideas a little more than they would typically be allowed to. And I guess maybe that's an earmark of, of a lot of indie films in general, but I, it comes across to me. So I, I don't know, but at the same time, I also completely agree with, uh with, with Vick's uh, take on it. I think you're right that this is, this is a movie about restoring order.
0: Well, yeah, because the fear of it is that it's almost Mad Max, as I think I said earlier. Is that like they're sort of in a wasteland and there's no, there's no police, there's no government to to help them. It's basically them against these sort of mad dogs, and and yeah, that that would be inherently pro-institution, you would think, other than the fact that like the reason for the problem is the government at that point.
2: Well, but that, but the 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 orphanage itself is the only thing sort of providing this semblance of normalcy. And John, your sort of mentioning of that Mad Max sort of post-apocalyptic feeling really is that when they run out of food, shit's going to get post-apocalyptic. Right now they're hanging on to civilization by a thread and certainly, my rooting interest when I'm watching the film is for them to succeed. I want the, that sense of normalcy. I want these children to have uh, a normal childhood. I want Cesare's, uh, you know, to to succeed and be the good guy and and take care of these children.
0: I, I want to say that this is probably just a blind spot for me and I know that it's a failing in me but like when I read stuff about this movie and it's like Spanish Civil War this and fascism that and you know uh, like there's all these things that they, people say well you're not going to get that unless you were you know living in, in Europe or, or or at least you know deeply entrenched in the history of, of Spain in, in the 20th century and I'm like yeah you're right I don't <laughs> I I don't get it. (laughs) Um, So.
1: I I just feel like it's, it's, I mean, I, I completely like, I I sympathize with what you're saying, but at the same time, it's like, we also had discussions about like under the shadow where it's like, Oh wow. I was really like captivated with like the, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of like the cultural nuance that the story brings in. And it's like, well, what's the difference?
0: Yeah. I mean, maybe in a, in a sort of left-handed way and don't get me wrong. I love this movie. I'm saying that that part of it, of this movie isn't resonating with me, whereas I'm completely open to it resonating with me, but it just doesn't. And so I'm, I'm willing to take 50% of the blame, but maybe maybe I'm, in a way, I'm sort of criticizing the movie here.
1: I, I will say there's an element of it that is a little precious. And I would I'd say this is a, like, this is a, a larger criticism than I have about Del Toro in general, where it's it's like a strength is also a, a flaw of his. Where where sometimes when filmmakers are trying to imbue too much symbolism or like you know story parallels into a genre film in particular, it can get a little heavy handed, you know. And you have films that like kind of get it just right, like like for some reason, like it follows, which is a very different movie comes immediately to mind where it's like well this movie is kind of about two things it's on it's on it's a horror movie like on its face and like on the other hand you can also sort of analyze what it's trying to say about you know a certain aspect of like society or culture or sociology but this movie does seem like it is putting those historical pieces into play and and setting people up to represent things Um, in a way that is almost like a little like too careful and you wish it was just a little more off kilter um, a little less controlled
0: I love what you're saying my point uh, my addition to that would be sort of naturalistic authentic un yes uncontrolled more like this is a bad example not everyone loves Gus Van Sant I certainly don't but like I mean, I'm not going to say he's bad, but like, he's not like one of my favorite filmmakers, but just sort of like an idea of this is just going to feel like reality versus feeling really measured and scripted and controlled and artistically imbued. Like I, I like movies that have sort of a balance of those two things. And this movie might be more on the extreme. Precious was a, is a, Good way to put it in the extreme.
2: Well, and it's interesting. I mean, it, it it ties into some of what I was saying about the historical significance of where this lands in Del Toro's filmography. Is I what that says to me is this is a really exceptional young filmmaker wrestling with these ideas, these really complicated ideas of how to muscle fables and horror films and political realities into one movie. And he doesn't have it all right yet that he's, 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 he's wrestling with it. He's got this, you know, he's, he's got this beast of an idea that he's trying to cram into this movie and I love that he has those ideas and that he's taking them all seriously and he's trying to make them work in this in this sort of unusual framework that he's chosen for it. But it does feel like a young filmmaker who doesn't have his his grasp totally around all those ideas in the way that I think he he starts to later on. And Pan's Labyrinth is a is a, a good example of that. Even if I have some quibbles with that film on other other elements of it, it definitely feels like he's got a firmer grasp on how to balance the fantastical elements, the political elements, the character elements, and the horror in a way that feels balanced and and a little more naturalistic. Would you guys Would you guys agree with that?
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I would to I would to an extent like I feel like because as you were saying that about the the just trying to be able to grapple with the balance of all this stuff, you know I continue to be a fan of his, but I think that like Shape of Water which which I liked I know John has some major problems with it, but like i think like Shape of Water while I do like that film still struggles with that same issue, like I think that he has a tendency to have kind of a heavy hand when it comes to symbolism and and it can it can get a little overplayed sometimes so I think you're totally right I think it's just like it's something that that has that he hasn't quite um shaken either
0: I don't really share Vic's optimism about his career I'm not gonna say like I think he's done like you know compared to um M. Night Shyamalan who people left for dead and personally I think he's done a more than respectable job of reinventing his career. But I, I think that Shape of Water is all of his worst instincts on full display. And I, I think it's a sort of a caricature of, of a Del Toro movie. And the fact that the Academy loves it, I think, says more about the elderly Academy voters and what how easily manipulated they are and what sort of comforting elements that they like to see from a movie um i think it says more about that than the actual quality of the film so yeah don't get me started on that movie but i think that's that and the sort of relative miss of crimson peak and you know not to mention just you know how many well okay no let's not even say that because i was going to say how many misses he's had i think that um pacific rim was really good so but but long long story short there there are things about Del Toro that are wonderful, and there are things that just don't really connect with me. I think this movie has both. I do want to quote, I think this is a great line. Um, it's the sort of, precursor to the film, the on-screen text, and the final speech, I think this is a wonderful statement about ghosts, and this makes me think. So it's certainly relevant to our our season and our show. So I want to, you know, segue to that real quick. I think it, yes, it's an abrupt segue, but I want to throw it out there. What is a ghost? A tragedy condemned to repeat itself time and time again? An instance of pain, perhaps? Something dead which still seems to be alive? an emotion suspended in time, like a blurred photograph, like an insect trapped in amber. Now, if that is not a cool definition of a ghost, I don't know what is. And yes, symbolically, thematically, I do see the idea of history repeating itself and that the idea of wrongs that are done don't can't be just swept under the rug they they do linger and they come back and they they will not allow themselves to be forgotten
1: what was that one one like pithy line that i that i read in a in a blog somewhere but i thought had some truth to it was uh take that same exact speech and just replace the word ghost with war
0: absolutely so another thing about this movie that I think about is that these characters do have lives before and after the events of the film that I do wonder about, I think are intriguing. This does feel like a cast that have led or will live dramatic and poignant lives that are worth exploring. So I think that's a plus.
1: I just had a, I just had a, had a piece of trivia that that blew my mind a bit. I want, I wanted to work in here is that, uh, Speaking of the, the, the cast and the long lives that they live, apparently um they go unnamed, but uh Carlos and Jamie, two of the, the two you know child leads who escape at the end of the film show up again as two soldiers in the rebellion in Pan's Labyrinth, um, who are murdered by the, the antagonist in that film.
0: What? Holy shit. I don't know what to make of that. On the on the one hand, that sort of repudiates my point, where like that's a rough way to end for, for characters who survive this movie. But <laughs> <laughs> it's it's certainly interesting. Fighting uh,
2: for what they fighting for what they believe in, John. I don't know.
0: So they're martyrs. Hmm. Be that as it may, and it's certainly a, an interesting tie-in. I just I'm not sure there's an underlying mythology in this movie. Certainly there is in Pan's Labyrinth. Like, I don't think there's an underlying mythology linking those two films. But the two particular deaths that create ghosts in this movie are considered worthy of producing fantasma. But unlike other del Toro films, this one doesn't have a lot of other sort of lore to it, or even the sense that we're getting just the tip of the iceberg with the mythology. It's not a new world. It's our world. It's just, in my opinion, a more just world, as we've discussed on the show in the past. This is existing in one of those worlds where terrible wrongs that are done could be fixed because in this world, victim spirits may have some recourse. And right off the top of my head, I'm reminded of what's what lies beneath for example, where sort of the idea that the scales of justice can be tipped by vengeful spirits.
2: Well, it does more than – I believe we said this in our earlier discussions in the film – more than almost any other del Toro film, this relies on an existing mythology. This is the mythology of haunted houses. uh, And I think uh, almost certainly a European and kind of American – uh, conception of a haunted house compared with what you get, I think, in Asia, where we have a very different take on ghosts and and haunted houses, and that idea of of maybe ghosts seeking some kind of justice or, or or redemption or something. But so yeah, so there is there is something conventional about this that you don't get in Pan's Labyrinth, that you don't get in Crimson Peak or or you know some other some other Del Toro films. When you use that shorthand, you don't have to have professor exposition show up and explain your mythology. We all come into the theater with the knowledge. Somehow, culturally, we've all just sort of accepted that people who die in horrible, unjust ways uh, sometimes come back and seek justice for that. I mean, that is the the whole idea behind a, a thousand haunted house movies that we've all seen. And so what that does then... From a, from a story perspective, I think, is leave you room to explore the characters, to explore the politics, to explore the world. You don't have to spend a lot of time world building. Uh, and so I, there's, a, there's a sense in which that helps the film in the areas that it is not a horror film. And that's what we what we keep coming back to. I feel like is there are lots of things that are fascinating, interesting about this, and and that are worthy of, of deeper thought, and that have merited some fascinating, uh, you know, criticism and ideas. But they they aren't those elements aren't the elements that make it a horror film. Those are sort of the, the, the backdrop. They fade away when you really look at this film in depth. And I think if you're talking about finding the greatest haunted house movie or the greatest horror movie those elements need to be front and center
0: I agree with you I want to I want to hear what Rich has to say but I think you're you're kind of hitting on something that totally dovetails with my innate response here is that in a list of just great movies great independent movies great foreign movies great war movies whatever kind of other subgenres you want to lenses and categories you want to put this movie in I I think this movie, I hold it in great esteem. But within the confines of greatest haunted house movie of all time, I think, yes, a lot of its strengths aren't outweighed by the weaknesses and the criteria that I hold more dear in the exercise that we are in the midst of. Rich, your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd say that the ways in which this movie succeeds – on a genre level, if, if you really want to break it down, it's actually that it's very successful in a few ways as a ghost movie, and I would say that the I would largely actually, as we talked about in the podcast prior to this, more attribute that to the the the, the ghost of a uh, of Doctor Cesare's more so than than Santhi personally, but you know it functions well as a ghost film, and it functions very well. As a, a grounded horror film, which is another kind of fringy subgenre that we've that we've talked about, where you're you're dealing with a, a horror story that is mostly rooted in reality and not the supernatural. I think that this movie has very strong elements of the two of those, and I think that by virtue of of setting, it, it kind of becomes a, a haunted house film. So. Yeah, I mean I, I guess in short, like I, I agree with you in a in a slightly different way that if you're really asking is this the greatest haunted house film of all time, then I'd say, you know, no it's not. But I can still say that it's a very effective horror film. Okay.
0: Agreed. And I think we won't always make rewatchability the the shortest category, but I think for this one maybe we will because uh we've we've said a lot about the movie already. And rewatchability is our third and final category that we're applying to movies. And it's uh, in this round, it's simply gauging how much you would look forward to and enjoy seeing it, this movie again, sharing it with others. How well will the movie hold up moving uh, forward? So Vic, what are your thoughts on the rewatchability of the devil's backbone?
2: I think that when when I sort of ran that idea of rewatchability through my head. This is not a film that I had revisited a bunch of times and I did enjoy watching it certainly a second time. The third time was a little bit trying. Now having done all this research and looked into the criticism, the symbolism, uh, you know, learning a little bit about the Spanish civil war and those sorts of things, I would be curious to watch it again through that lens and, and having downloaded that, information into my head to see what other stuff gets teased out of it. The real weakness to me for the film when it comes to rewatchability, which I brought up when we did the earlier discussion of it, is that fundamentally the mystery sucks. There's one bad guy in it. He's really obviously the bad guy, and you find out in the end that the bad guy did it. And that's not – so there's not like – you're not watching it Teasing out clues and looking at at sort of fascinating details that are hovering in the background that illuminate the actual narrative. Uh, I, I think there's interesting things in the performances that come out when you watch a little closer. I read one of the reviews talked about when they they line up all the guys and and shoot them, and Doctor Cesaris is there. It's one of the few trips sort of outside of the orphanage that if you watch his reaction, he reacts visibly to every single shot. So he, he's not getting numb to it, but every single one, he, he tenses, he jumps, uh, you can see him being horrified by it. I thought, Oh, well that would be something sort of interesting to, to look at again and really appreciate, uh, everything that goes into those, those kinds of details. But it's not something that I think I need to, I need to pull apart, uh, again, in 10 years or 20 years and see how my, maybe how my perspective on it has changed uh, as I've, as I get older and everything else, my, my thoughts and feelings about the film between my first viewing, you know, 10 years ago, longer than that, jeez Louise, 15 years ago, have not, were not substantially different than they were watching it again for this podcast. And I imagine they wouldn't be substantially different 15 years hence.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd say that if anything, and I don't even mean to be disparaging, like I actually really like this movie, but I'd say I actually like this movie a little less now than when I saw it originally. Perhaps some um, because I just am, am familiar with the the story, and also there are elements of it that that read a, a little bit dated now, just in terms of its its filmic quality. I mean, look, it's a we've talked about it a lot. It's a movie that has a big heart but that heart is also on its sleeve and so that means that like you said i'm not sure that there's a there's not a whole lot that you get out of viewing it again that you did not get the first time you you went through it and so rewatchability is a is a tough one for for this movie i'm with you I, i'd be happy to watch it again but i'm not excited about
0: it yeah i think Vic hit the nail on the head. I didn't even realize that, even though he's said it before, so (laughs) shame on me. But the very fact that there's not, this ties back to food for thought. Like, this movie absolutely does not leave you like, I really wonder what actually did happen. No, we know what actually did happen. So yeah, like that sort of intrigue, that narrative uh, ambiguity, that sort of theories and pondering, Um, is missing from this film as opposed to The Shining, for example. Even though, you know, even The Shining is not one of the best examples of the idea of narrative puzzling out later. I think, uh, for example, Twelve Monkeys is a a prime example of a movie that you walk out of it just completely playing through scenarios of of what really went on or what could have happened next and, and so on. So I I think this movie does not have any of that. And I think that's one of the great markers of rewatchability, but I will say that the movie has made enough of an impression on me that I do want to share it with others. It's a beautiful, emotional, tragic and moving film. And yet it's filled with the resilience and vitality of youth. I think it has a lot to teach us personally. I don't have a very strong pull to revisit it solo Cause it doesn't necessarily push my buttons or have deep personal significance to me, but it's definitely a movie that I would choose to bring to those I care about. And I think that that actually is, is significant. So
2: that's actually that John, I think that's an interesting point because I did have that same feeling that I don't need to sit alone at midnight and watch it again, but this is a movie that would be good to share with somebody. And that's, that's almost sort of a, a subcategory of rewatchability. That you know, the, this is the kind of if somebody, if you were with somebody who didn't like horror movies, or thought that they didn't like horror movies, or maybe were curious about them but but weren't sure what to, you know, how to find their way in. This would be a great movie to introduce them to. I,
0: and, I imagine watching it with my future kids. To be honest, on some level, yeah. at a certain age, at a certain age.
2: That's that's weird, John, but. I, you know it's fun.
1: Other than kids, like, have you ever encountered anyone that's that's like, it's like Vic? I'm looking at a looking at getting into horror. <laughs> like, where what kind of stuff? can you like hook me up with some? Like, like people. I guess people. Well, too bad say-
0: that we're not out, we're out of the dating game because that would have been one of those scenarios. <laughs> we're all married.
1: <laughs> that's what the, well, they only they only pretend like they're into horror, John, until they get their hooks in you. <laughs>
0: though i mean i could imagine watching this movie with my wife and i think it would be an interesting watch to be honest i really do
2: that's nothing to shake a stick at mm-hmm. like that there's like i said that that's something you could share with somebody that hey this is these are these are the ways in which you can use the tools of horror to illuminate other things and that can you know that that's a a hell of an accomplishment, frankly, in a way. This is – you know what it is? This is a movie I could almost watch with my parents and have, them, and have them get through it and be intrigued by it and sort of appreciate the history and the character and then sort of go, okay, yeah, but even the ghost stuff kind of works, right? Like there's something lyrical and beautiful and it fits into this fable-like structure that he's put together.
0: Um, well, we, we used the term normies, which, again, I didn't come up with. It's from a great podcast um, called Final Guys. It's the first place I heard that. But I feel like, yes, it's a it's a horror movie that we could share with normies, and they're going to be scared shitless, you know, potentially. And we're going to enjoy watching other people scared by a movie, but at the same time, hopefully they're going to still – find the redeeming qualities, the valuable qualities in it, and be glad that they saw the movie and maybe have a little more appreciation for the artistry of horror films at the same time. So, but at the same time, maybe I'm wondering, is that germane to our, our mission here? Because that isn't really what we're trying to determine. The greatest haunted house movie of all time is not, well, could I, you know, could I watch it with, my mother-in-law or whoever, and she not hate it. No, this is supposed to be deeply personal. But at the same time, I think there is something personal about that. In that like, I think this is a beautiful movie that I would enjoy sharing. So then it becomes personal in that regard because I do love this movie. So it, yeah, it's still relevant to the criteria uh, of the tournament because one of the things is, would you be proud to experience this movie with someone else. And I I do think that's a relevant factor. So sorry to belabor the point, but yeah, I think it's important.
1: So does that mean down the line that we can, uh, we can like take points off, so to speak, if it's a movie that you'd be ashamed to show to someone else?
0: I mean, if that matters to you, but I mean, I like, for example, there's a movie that I fucking love, um, called street trash that I would never want to watch with any respectable person, but I fucking love that movie. (laughs)
2: I was going to say only when we get to the human centipede. Yeah. That's, that's when it'll be, you can take a few points off for that.
0: Yeah. Human centipede, street trash. Yeah. They're, they're basically And but I have a deep personal love for movies that I would not ever want to watch with my mom. So no, that's not going to, that's not going to, I'm not going to take points off for that.
2: I uh, I almost sent you guys a meme I saw today. That was a, just a, a still picture from the human centipede and it just said, there's no wrong way to eat a Reese's cup.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. That's <laughs> <laughs> I've seen
0: all three <laughs> human centipede movies. Have I'll, I'll, you mean, know. really? I've oh.
2: never seen one. Is it worth watching?
0: Yes. All of them are worth watching. Yeah.
1: All I thought the, right. the, 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 the the trailer for the meta one, I think it's the second one, or it's like the human centipede is a movie and he's like doing a human centipede because he's inspired with a movie. I, I, thought, I always thought the plot of that sounded really intriguing, but I've just always heard that they're trash.
0: Again, I love a movie called Street Trash. <laughs> they're, they're, they're not classy, but they're very interesting. You know, they're not, um, a, you know, just a pedestrian, uh-oh, I'm going to get knocked out in a ring someday for saying this, a Juve Bowl movie, you know? Uh-huh. Like, they they really have, they're, they're doing something audacious and ballsy, and they're doing it with gusto so but trashy 100% well that's a good segue to our next movie let's uh let's reload our beverages and use the lavatory and come right back hey folks john here as we often do we will cut this episode in half right here next time it will be the shining under discussion and we'll find out which film shall advance so for now adios